Chapter forty six of White Rose of Weary Leaf by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter forty six. Jeremy Dan's room in the office of the works at Oldfort was furnished in his own rather severe taste, bearing no signature of any one of the decorating firms in vogue. His individuality was duly stamped on this, his abiding place for many hours out of the day but it would have been impossible to reduce his theory of furnishing to a formula. He liked to see glass in a room, and water in a landscape. Accordingly, the pictures and engravings that decorated the walls were all views of the river Durin as it flowed idly past the towers of Blois, or was usefully covered with shipping at Oldfort. Four exceedingly good empire mirrors, and a cabinet full of Venetian crystal and coloured glass goblets, that occupied one whole side of the room, suggested a conservatory rather than an interior. Mrs. Dand, in happier days, was used to make faint jokes about glass houses in this connection. She came there very seldom now. She was annoyed by an enlarged photograph of one of the figures in a pieta of Andrea del Sarto, which stood on the vast writing-table in front of her husband's blotting-pad she could never constrain herself to forego the first sour glance at it on entering the room though she had schooled herself to make no verbal objection to its presence there he would not have tolerated her criticism but indeed mrs dand who had been in her youth a pupil at the south kensington school of art did not think that the head of the angel in question was at all like amy no matter her husband said it was he fancied he saw a resemblance Tom Judd and Mr. Johnson, in fact everybody about the office, was aware that the master had set the photograph up in an inlaid frame as a reminder of her. He had another memento, a cast of Amy's ugly hand in silver, which took up a whole drawer of the desk. Mr. Johnson was just sensitive enough to be able to realise how deeply his chief was changed by the domestic catastrophe, for he spoke of it as such which had overtaken him. He permitted this public testimony to the vagrancy of his affections, and he made a confidant of his secretary, who saw in the first instance serious signs of decadence in this once stern, self-contained man. Mr. Johnson, from the moment Amy left Swarland, found himself the only person privileged to speak with freedom to Mr. Dand, and having lovingly accepted the unenviable responsibility, spoke often and did not mince his words his language was stronger more forcible than it used to be he was more a man of the world his marriage which had not turned out well had made a man of the deprecating unworldly being who had once held converse out of business hours with his chief only on the merits and demerits of books and rare editions the contents of case g had been sold mr johnson had advised it Dand and he had changed places. It was Dand who listened, who maundered, who was humble now. Mr. Johnson spoke authoritatively, as he stood by the long flat desk, watching Mr. Dand absently fingering a small, beautifully inlaid pocket pistol that lay constantly under the Andrea del Sorto photograph, and that the housekeeper was forbidden to touch during the morning's stage of dusting. She had been assured that it was loaded, but she openly declared that she believed nothing of the kind. Still, she did not care to handle it. It was no business of hers. 
She didn't know who the boy in the photograph was of, not she. She knew what they said. The pistol had lain there for six months now, and custom had at last blunted the dread of its use in all of them, even Mrs. Dand. Like the housekeeper, she had come to look upon the lethal weapon lying there as a silly bit of show-off, intended to frighten them all into good behaviour, and aid her husband's pose as a tragic figure. That pleased him just now. It was part of his illness. Loaded? No, of course it was not loaded. At least she thought not. All the same, she hated the sight of it, nearly as much as she hated the sight of Amy's portrait. They were both symptoms of the same disease. Mr. Johnson knew better. The pistol certainly was loaded, yet his reasons for remonstrating with its owner were more or less those he gave. Jeremy, you can have no idea how it fidgets me to see you playing with that wretched thing. The very sight of it lying there worries your wife dreadfully. She needn't come here. One knows exactly how it is, continued the secretary. Just a habit with you, a morbid toy, like those arrangements one wears on a watch-chain. A friend of mine used to sport an ivory skull with shifting jewels for eyes. Hideous bad form, I think, that sort of thing. I can't help it, Johnson, if you do think me a bounder and as vulgar as Werther. I admit it is vulgar to take on so because a woman chooses to leave you. But this one's worth it. As for this thing, he gave it a scornful push. You can look at it as a safety valve. Give a man rope enough and he won't hang himself. I have thought of it, I confess. Let me see, seven months that I have dangled this charming breloque on my chain and not a sign. If this goes on, I shall be driven to use the pretty toy or bang my head against the wall till I smash my skull in. It comes on in fits. Only today. I say, Johnson, it is too bad. What can she be thinking of? Seven months and not a line. She said she wouldn't write, and she hasn't, said Johnson quite gruffly. Give her credit for as much obstinacy as yourself. By the way, your wife gave me to understand yesterday when I was up at Swarland. I gather you did not sleep at home. Absurd. That she intended to come here today and speak to you about Amy. The deuce she did. Why? She seems to think she can't stand it. Stand what? No more can I. Self, self, always self, said the secretary. I must say, Jeremy, this is an uncommonly egotistic attitude of yours, sitting here, day by day, nursing your grief and letting everyone know the cause, regardless of your wife's claims on you. Of course, it all rebounds on her, and her position in her household, and in the county. It's an odious position for a man to place his wife in. It's come to this. She's a woman of sense, and she'd rather have the girl back. She says, and she's right, that she couldn't be worse off if it was all on again. The drooping man in the swivel chair raised his head and looked at his mentor helplessly, disarmingly. My dear, I haven't her address, or I'd get her back like a shot. Not that my wife would like it, whatever she may tell you, poor thing. I pity her. She's crushed under two millstones. Neither would Amy like it. Amy has arranged differently. You don't seem to see, Jeremy, that Amy, fine creature and good girl, is grappling with the situation you muffed, and managing it admirably from everyone's point of view. 
I have told you all this a hundred times, but I will go over it again. What you, what we have all got to do, is to help her and fall in with her plans. She won't have it your way. She won't, God bless her, come back to you and have an intrigue. She won't have you go where she is and have a scandal. I think, putting it as a man of the world, that you have got off uncommonly well. It isn't every man has an affair with a girl and finds her able and willing to take the business off his hands and manage the whole thing by herself. She's a brick, that's what she is. And you and all your house ought to be down on your knees in gratitude to her. Poor girl. She may be having a child. Mellison said she was well on the way. Or Mellison may have been mistaken, and she may be all right and at work again. She isn't penniless at any rate, for I understand you were most generous. Mrs. Dand isn't aware you settled money on her, I suppose. I did not gather she knew from her conversation to me, just as well. But it was the right thing to do, old man. Cheer up. The chances are that instead of being upon your bones continually, as a weaker woman would have been, Amy is in the best of health and spirits somewhere. Why should you insist on supposing her ill and unhappy? I don't know. I am. That's the merely selfish point of view, I beg to submit. I am selfish. This self-evident proposition was disregarded by the comforter. He approached and laid his hand on his friend's that lay on the weapon. Old man, he said. Johnson had picked up a few male phrases since his marriage. Dear old man, don't take it so hardly. You have a handsome, devoted wife, a fine boy, a prosperous business, and splendid health, if only you wouldn't play such tricks with it. Why should you chuck it all because one little pale girl did not choose to stay here and be your mistress? And I, anyone could tell you, that would have ended badly for both of you, if you had had your way. You could not possibly have kept her at Swarland, and if you had set her up at Oldfort or elsewhere, it would have been sure to have been leaked out somehow, and scandal would have ensued. Damn you! Scandal should have ensued. You completely misunderstand my aims. I didn't mean to hide Amy away or anything of that kind. No, no! Edith would have divorced me, and Amy and I would have married and gone off somewhere together. You were reckoning without your host. Amy would never have seen it that way. She was fond of you, but she had too much sense to ruin you. She did what she could. She showed no resentment. She took your money and made no vulgar ado about it like the lady she is. Though I can see no ethical reason why she should have refused. You are so rich. Fifteen thousand pounds is a mere pinprick to you. She is doing something with it, I expect, turning it to profit somehow. I should not be surprised myself if she had gone on the stage. We might easily go to the play in London and see Amy looking at us gravely over the footlights any blessed evening. I'll go up to town tomorrow and not leave a theatre unvisited. Do so, but mind you, keep away from the stage door afterwards. Amy would not think it very gentlemanly if you hunt her up. She even might call it caddish. A man in despair doesn't stick at being called a cad. What's that? Who's that? Tom Judd had appeared at the door of the ante-room. A lady wants to know if she may see you, sir. I see everybody. Show her in. 
Mr. Dan turned to his secretary. Suppose, Johnson, that it were Amy. I never turn anyone away now. The long arm of coincidence, I fear, won't run to anything so dramatic as that, answered Mr. Johnson, as he retired in favour of the personage that Tom Judd was even now introducing. She was a plain, spare, not unmotherly-looking woman, dressed in black. There was a suggestion of the nurse about her, not warranted, though, by her unprofessional attire. "'Mr. Jeremy Dand?' she asked. "'I am Mr. Dand. Is there anything I can do for you?' "'I bring a letter, sir, from Miss Stevens.' His hand, which had been resting familiarly on the revolver, was stretched out. The nurse in the woman easily read the febrile eagerness in his gesture, and, stepping quickly up to him, she delivered up a bulky envelope. "'Thank you,' he said quietly, mastering his voice. "'There seems a good deal of it. Would you mind returning a moment to the anteroom while I read it through? You'll find the illustrated papers there.' She obeyed him, and he opened the packet. There was a minute curl of pale-coloured hair in it, which he took out and placed on the desk in front of him, without pausing to consider it. He was in haste to get to Amy's letter. End of chapter 46 Read by Lisa Reichert.